welcome to Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about the people behind today's virology headlines, people working to understand viruses and how they affect you. We are talking with virologists, students and postdocs that belong to the American Society for Virology so that you can learn who they are and what they do. I am Larissa Thackray, and I am hosting this podcast from America's Heartland in St. Louis, Missouri. On September 15th, 2021, we talked with Haley Cadwell, a graduate student in the Ciota lab at the Wadsworth Center and the University of Albany, who's investigating how viral quasi-species impact the fitness and adaptation of West Nile virus. She also established whole genome sequencing for the mumps virus following several vaccine breakthroughs while obtaining her master's in laboratory science at the Wadsworth Center. Thanks for talking with us today. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? My name is Haley Caldwell. I'm currently a PhD candidate um, over at SUNY Albany, but I actually work in um, my thesis lab is actually in the Wadsworth Center in the New York State Department of Health. Um, And it's the Arbovirology Laboratory, so um, studying vector-borne diseases primarily. So in terms of my educational history, I also have a master's in um, laboratory science that I also got from the Wadsworth Center. Um, where I did a project in clinical virology sequencing mumps samples that came from um, an outbreak that was uh, that was going around colleges in New York State and actually the entire um, country at the time. Um, and I ended up, I'm sort of going in reverse, but um, I ended up getting my uh, Bachelor of Arts and Science at Vassar, where I uh, ended up doing a thesis on trying to culture, really difficult to culture bacteria um, from the soil. Cool. And can you tell us sort of how did you first become interested in science and then virology? When did that first start for you? Um, so I remember it starting actually with a dream, which is interesting. When I was a kid, I was actually um, so I grew up right around the time of uh, SARS um, that was big in the news. And um, actually, anthrax was also pretty big in the news. And um, as a kid, I uh got pretty scared actually of, of, of both of those things. And I ended up having a dream where um, both of my parents were infected and I couldn't help them and um, they were gonna die. And I, um, so that's when I started to sort of get into the idea of pandemics and then virology from that, because I'm actually really, really afraid of pandemics to be honest with you. So it's kind of interesting to live through one when as a kid, all, you've been afraid your entire life of one. Um, And so from there, I kind of was like, okay, so I'm afraid of this, but I'm also interested in it. And I also want to learn more about it so I can try to help control it so it doesn't end up happening, basically. And so that's honestly how I sort of got interested in science. Um, Although I have to give a shout out to my uh, seventh grade science teacher who really, really got me interested in um, sort of evolutionary theory of how things grow and change in the environment. And then can you kind of describe your past? So how did you sort of get to where you are today as far as the different um, uh, education, different organizations that you ended up with? Yeah, so um, obviously I went to a liberal arts school, Vassar is a liberal arts school, so I didn't go in knowing that I was going to major in science. Um, That's because even though I was interested in science, I wasn't sure I wanted to make a career out of it. So I sort of wanted to explore a lot of different options. Um, And that's what I did in my liberal arts school. If you look at my background, I took classes in a lot of different departments, um, not not just science. What was your favorite class? My favorite class was virology. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, my favorite non-science class um, was philosophy. Um, it was also, it was actually um, logic in philosophy. So um, yeah, symbolic logic. So it's actually the system for writing out proofs um, for various things using some, so it kind of makes sense that it would be symbolic logic, right? Um, but I was also a big fan of the bioethics classes. Um, that was always that was a strong career thought for me was to go into bioethics. Um, what with my love of science and philosophy, I actually almost ended up double majoring in philosophy and science, which is which is interesting. So I went to college, and I was um, you know I, I was taking classes here and there, and I found that I ended up like the classes that resonated the most with me were science classes, and I really liked doing bench work. Um, so like during our classes, we got to do a little bit of bench work and I really, really liked that. So I thought, okay, you know, I'll major in biology. You know, it's, it's a, I don't want to be one of those unemployed liberal arts students. <laughs> so I said, okay, you know, let, let's do it. And then I ended up doing a thesis, um, in biology that I really, really enjoyed working on. Um, and that's what made me think, oh, I should go forward with this career because I, I love doing this research. Um, I love look like, you know. I sort of came up with a project and I loved coming up with a project and I loved going through the project and, you know, trying to figure out what was going on there. And, um, you know, I learned a lot. And so that made me want to go on to graduate school. Um, but because I was in sort of a liberal arts environment, I didn't have a lot of lab experience that sort of people in the, uh, more hardcore science schools had. So I wanted to go ahead and get a master's to give myself more lab work. Um, and so the master's I got was sort of with that in mind and the way the program was structured was actually really nice in that I got to um, rotate through most of the labs at uh, Wadsworth Center, which is um, the reference lab um, for New York State. Um, and there's a lot of different labs in there that range from sort of biochemistry to mass spectrometry to virology, mycology. And so that was really good that I got to do that. And I got to do some additional coursework um, that some of my my liberal arts requirements actually made it hard for me to do because they don't want you to specialize in just the hard sciences. Can you tell us what a reference center is? A lot of people are more familiar with like biotech or, you know, the academic career, but the Wadsworth is sort of one of these institutions that's a little bit different. So can you just tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. So we, um, one of the things that we do is, as I said, work as a reference up, but what does that mean? So what that means is that if um, cases or samples are coming in from doctor's offices that the typical um, routine like labs or startups like, you know, Quest Diagnostics or whatever like that, they can't identify it or it's a rare identification, what they'll do is they'll then say, okay, we don't really quite know what to do with this sample. So they actually send it to the Wadsworth Center where we actually determine whether or not it is what they think it is, if they have a presumptive diagnosis, or we actually determine what it is. So we're sort of the last line of defense in determining like what a sample actually is and what you're actually potentially infected with. Um, and that's because we have more robust ways um, of sort of analyzing a sample as opposed to just say like a PCR, which a lot of people have heard about. Now we have more than just like a PCR to identify it. We can actually grow up the sample. Um, we can actually use a couple more advanced techniques to try to figure out what it is. So it's interesting in that sense. And um, it was nice to be there in another sense because you also have access to all these sort of rare samples from human isolates, which are, you know, highly relevant for research um, because they came directly from people.
And you also get to see a lot of weird sort of illnesses, especially in New York, because you, uh, um, it's such an international hub that we end up seeing quite interesting stuff. And we also do things like my lab does surveillance um, for um, mosquito-borne diseases in New York State. Um, so that's another sort of thing that the lab typically does is we do surveillance for like foodborne outbreaks and we do surveillance on mosquitoes. And we also do surveillance for flu cases. So determining what kind of flu is going around and all that stuff. So um, I like the public health sort of bent of where I am, I'm sort of hearkening back to that pandemic dream because I've always sort of wanted to have science that's translated and can do good. So that's why public health has sort of stood out to me as where I want to be. Right, right. So anyway, so you did your, uh, you did rotations and that was during your master's, is that right? Yep. Okay. And then, then how did you progress from there? Um, so it's sort of similar to my undergrad. I really enjoyed doing my thesis in virology like a lot. I had a really, really, really fun time. I thought, you know, the question was super interesting. And the question was um, basically like, we're seeing these mumps outbreaks in universities among people who have both shots of the um, MMR vaccine, um, which, in which includes mumps. Why are we seeing these cases with people who are fully vaccinated? Um, you know, because, you know, we were worried about vaccine breakthrough, the idea that the vaccine was less effective, or is mumps changing in such a way that it's it's able to evade the vaccine in some way? So, you know, we had these big hypotheses sort of going in about whether it was waning immunity, essentially, or whether it was the virus changing or whether it was something else entirely. Um, and sort of toward that end, um, we wanted to develop a whole genome sequencing um, protocol for mumps. Uh, the reason being that the old way that we had of differentiating different mumps cases um, was based on sequencing of a very, very small but highly diverse gene segment um, called the SH gene. And the issue was that um, we would we would uh, we would do the sequencing for these outbreaks and they would all be identical. Um, so we were like, OK, now we have no information about how sort of the virus is changing and we have no idea who where it may have come from or any like anything like that. So we clearly need to do whole genome sequencing. Um, and so helping to develop that protocol, but then actually running the samples and being able to create these um, these trees, phylogenies, showing the uh, relationship between each of the cases was very sort of fulfilling. Um, and being able to go through and look at the sequences and look for those amino acid changes to see if there was any um, sort of evasion going on or um, whether or not mumps was staying relatively similar to where it was before and something else was going on. Um, but uh, there's a paper under review <laughs> for that. So <laughs> hopefully it'll come out soon and I can tell you more. Cool, cool. That's, uh, that's I guess, in the, uh, for a lot of our listeners, in a way, a lot of what you're discussing would not be, not be something they had heard of, but in the context of the current pandemic, uh, yeah. thinking about breakthrough, thinking about waning immunity, thinking about... Um, changes in the virus is actually stuff that's percolating even, you know, sort of in the national press. So it's kind of interesting to think about it in the context of other viral infections as well. Exactly. Yeah. So um, from there, I stuck with the idea sort of a viral evolution because I was really interested in it. Um, so now I um, basically look at um, viral evolution of a West Nile virus, specifically sort of 
Um, West Nile virus is, uh, is an arbovirus. It's endemic to New York State and pretty much all of the United States, even though people remember it from 1999, but it's kind of sort of faded from the public memory, even though it does actually cause cases every year. Um, and the reason I was interested in this particular virus is um, because it has to, it has a life cycle such that, well, a life cycle, but um, I say life cycle with quotation marks because so our, people argue whether viruses are alive or not. I like to think of them as alive, um, but um, where it has to infect both the mosquito host um, and for transmission. So the mosquito will go ahead and bite other susceptible hosts to spread it, but it also has to infect its um, reservoir host, um, reservoir our host being a host that doesn't get terribly sick, but produces a lot of virus that can then be transmitted back to the mosquito. Um, and so I was interested in like what factors mediate the virus's ability to be able to adapt so quickly to these different hosts. Um, and in doing that, we study a lot of sort of the viral mutations that go on during an infection. Um, which sort of resonates now with um, the coronavirus variants. Um, so it's it's interesting to see that sort of crossover in, in the research. Does West Nile actually change a lot? First, I want to talk about the difference between consensus and minority level changes, just because I don't think everyone's familiar with that and it's important to answering your question. Um, so a consensus level change is a change that is occurring in most of the viral sequences that we generate. Um, the cutoff is actually 50% or more. That changes in the majority of virus that is in your body at a current time. Right. And that, that would be able to be detected by traditional Sanger sequencing, basically, right? Exactly. Correct. Um, one of the reasons we do whole genome sequencing, though, is so we can get at these minority changes, which is the um, kind of the opposite of a consensus change, where it's occurring in less than 50% and sometimes as low as like 4%. So from a consensus or majority level, which is like how I like to refer to it, because I think it's a little clearer than saying consensus, West Nile and arboviruses in general evolve extremely slowly. And the reason for that, we believe, is this dual host system, um, because it has not only the uh, selective and evolutionary pressures of one host, but two, which really like argues that it's gonna stay relatively similar. That being said, um, it still does evolve. And we've actually seen um, what's called displacement of West Nile virus strains with new consensus changes. So the New York 99 was the first strain to um, come to the US and sort of proliferate. That has since been displaced by the O2 strain, which has a change in the envelope. And that looks like it's now being displaced by another strain, the New York 10 strain. So we do actually see evolution of West Nile virus over time. It's just relatively slow. And we believe it's because of that dual host system. On a minority level, the picture is extremely different. Um, so we see a ton, an absolute ton of, of uh, minority level substitutions. And whether they're evolutionarily relevant or not is hard to say. Um, but they definitely do impact the phenotype of the virus. So its ability to infect hosts, its ability to infect hosts and proliferate. And that's what I focus on because the hypothesis behind the work that I'm doing is that these minority level changes are what's really important in host specific fitness. Um, because we know that these minority changes actually work together with these other um, viruses in your body with these slightly different genotypes to create the uh, fitness of the virus overall. Right. So that's sort of the idea that the quasi-species swarm is more fit than an individual virus. I remember James Brennan, our lab 
many years ago was actually interested in, in that question. Yeah, quasi-species are a big part of my work. <laughs> when you think about the reservoir host, though, is there a lot of changes in that host? Because it seems like there would be more, um, I don't know, a sort of an evolutionary sort of balance. So there have a, there's actually been quite a bit of work comparing sort of the uh, diversity, um, which is just sort of a, a measure of how much the virus is changing. Um, in, uh, say, mosquito versus avian hosts. And um, there's been some back and forth in the field about whether there's more diversity in the mosquito host, or there's more diversity in the avian host. But sort of the general hypothesis is that there's a uh, more diversity in the mosquito host and uh, the minority wise. And the reason for that is uh, actually the primary immune system of the mosquito, which is RNAi-based, probably, as you know. Um, and RNAi-based immune systems basically target sequences that are identical to the uh, sequence that the mosquito has plucked out of the virus. Um, and so it actually will um, go ahead and find that same sequence and bind to it and then destroy it. Um, so any viruses that, you know, say have a consensus level change will be targeted. So the idea then is you want more diversity in the mosquito host so that these targeted sequences are not actually going to be able to work. So you're going to be able to sort of subvert the mosquito immune system. Um, and although um, avian hosts also have an RNAi response, it's not the main form of the immune response. So the idea is there's sort of relaxed selection pressure. And when you say avian hosts, what are the avian hosts for West Nile? Well, there's over 200 different species that be can become infected. When I was talking about West Nile as sort of um, able to infect a lot of different hosts, I, one thing I didn't mention was just the sheer number of both mosquito species and um, avian species that can be infected by West Nile. Um, it's also able to infect some really bizarre animals like alligators, chipmunks, and squirrels. So that was the other reason that it's an interesting virus to look at in terms of host adaptation, because it does seem to be so broadly adaptable. Um, but the uh, primary um, and sort of most important host is considered to be like passerine birds like robins. Um, so even though it does infect this sort of wide variety of birds, robins are the ones that sort of if you think about it from the virus's perspective, right, you want to infect a host, but you don't want to infect a host so much so that the host dies. You want to infect the host in such a way that they're still producing a lot of virus, um, but that it's not having a huge impact on their day-to-day -day life so that they can then spread it to other mosquitoes. And robins are sort of that kind of like robins and sparrows are sort of that host for West Nile. They develop a high viremia, that is to say a lot of virus in their blood, which is how it... Um, you know, it gets transmitted by mosquitoes, but they typically don't die from West Nile virus infection. Um, so they tend to live like decently long lives while being infected. Well, they eventually become immune, but for a while they're just able to sort of transmit it with no real problem on their part. Hmm. Um, so that's what makes them a good host. And this is in direct contrast to crows. I don't know if you remember the, the crows sort of dropping. Um, and that's because they get too sick. Um, they get these insanely high viral loads and they get um, West Nile is a neuroinvasive disease. So and once it gets into your brain, there's really it's really, really difficult to um, mediate what's going on there, especially, say, in an avian um, host. And so they just die. Um, and as a result, they're not considered to be great. Um, hosts for West Nile. 
Right. And I guess um, you were talking a little bit about sort of the prevalence of West Nile in the U.S. So there are areas in the world, for example, like Israel, where there's actually a lot of West Nile. So can you kind of talk a little bit about why why is it so or why up to date has it not been more frequent in the continental U.S.? So this is an interesting thing about flaviviruses. Um, They're very hard to detect. And when I say they're very hard to detect, what I mean is normally the way that we determine whether you're sick with something or not is, you know, you get symptoms, you go to the doctor and the doctor orders a test for, say, you know, whatever it is. And it's usually a a PCR test. The issue um, with uh, flaviviruses in general, this is not specific to West Nile, um, is that you really only see virus in the blood, which is the sample they usually take before you're symptomatic. Mm. Um, And nobody goes out and gets tested before they're symptomatic. (laughs) So that's one issue. The other issue is the majority of cases are asymptomatic, 80% or more. So a lot of people are getting the virus and never knowing it. Um, The third issue is um, that it's not sort of a common uh, disease to think about. So most doctors don't necessarily think to test for it. And most people don't remember if they were bitten by a mosquito because it's such a, such a common occurrence. However, if you actually look, you know, and by look, I mean um, what you basically have to do to see sort of what the prevalence of West Nile infection is, is you've got to do um, antibody testing um, because that will tell you if you've ever been infected or not. It won't tell you if you're infected right now, but it, it will tell you if you've ever been infected. And so when we do sort of estimates of West Nile cases based both on this asymptomatic rate and on, and on zero surveys, we actually see cases in the millions overall in the last 10 years. So it's not so much that it's not here, it's just that we're not really um, paying too much attention to it, even though it's there. And in terms of these other countries like Israel and actually Europe recently, um, they typically have not had the same kind of caseloads for West Nile virus that we did initially. And um, they're sort of worried that now that West Nile virus might be changing in such a way to become more virulent in these areas than it previously was for humans, or it might be spreading to new hosts. So there's definitely an increased interest there. And there's an increased interest. And as a result, there's um, sort of more scrutiny going on for West Nile cases that are occurring and more testing going on. Um, Because, yeah, we have this long term interest, obviously, in West Nile and flaviviruses in general causing um, sort of like. Uh, pro, uh, sequelae, I guess, after potentially even asymptomatic infection. So it sort of suggests that, you know, there may be an underappreciated burden for flaviviruses yeah. in general. And unfortunately, it's only growing because, you know, there's new flaviviruses, Powassan, you know, some of these other ones that are starting to actually be emerge. Pop, yeah. Emerge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, so uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of where you are right now in your PhD and then kind of what your thoughts are for the future? What are you thinking about doing? So I'm actually close to the end of my PhD. Oh, cool. fingers, fingers crossed. You never know what's going to happen. I got a couple experiments I still got to do. Yeah. Um, but the plan is for me to start writing my dissertation in the spring. So I'm getting there. Um, My current plan is to um, go ahead and do a postdoc because I'm interested in teaching. Um, I'm interested in teaching and doing a little bit of research. So kind of like um, 
at maybe a liberal arts school or uh, sort of a less, not like an R01 institution, just because of the um, competitiveness and the, uh, the stress of writing grants, not to say that those, that's not present um, in those other institutions, but the nice thing about the liberal arts sort of model is that you can focus more on your teaching and your research doesn't have to sort of dominate your entire life. And uh, the reason sort of that that career interests me is one, I really want to share knowledge on viruses. I think they're, you know, they're, they're sort of vaguely understood, but there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, so I really want to, you know, share what I know. And I think they're really cool. So I <laughs> sort of want to tell everyone about them. Um, and then the, the other reason is sort of, um, I wanted to sort of this sounds kind of silly, but I wanted to kind of serve as a uh, as a role model for um, scientists who have um, sort of any kind of mental illness because it's highly stigmatized in the field. I myself have anxiety, um, but I want to go ahead and uh, show that even with you know anxiety, which you generally aren't supposed to talk about that you have because people won't hire you, that you can still go ahead and pursue a career in science and. It's, it's not something you need to be ashamed of, even though I've kind of always been ashamed of it. So kind of my goal is to be able to foster more of that in the scientific field and sort of uh, fight the bias that's there of sort of having anything kind of like that wrong with you. Right, right. And when you're talking about like getting, a, doing a postdoc looking for, I guess, sort of like an R2 institution kind of job, what kind of mm, uh, systems are you looking at? So for a postdoc, I'm currently thinking about um, sort of a variety of viruses um, that I could be looking at because I am interested in them. Um, I primarily would be hoping to look for a, a BSL-2 level virus, but the good news about that is you can use a replicon-based system if you need to. Um, so I'd still probably be trying to do sort of the same basic virology work, but potentially using a replicon system so the biosafety level of the virus is, uh, is less. So I guess one question just as we're finishing up is, you know, how do you how do you choose a postdoc then? What are the things that you kind of look for in choosing a postdoc? It's a tough question. <laughs> so the things that I think about when I'm looking for a postdoc is um, I'm looking for an environment where um, so you see so you hear these horror stories of postdocs who work themselves into the ground um i am looking for a work-life balance i know again that's not something you're supposed to say in science but i think as um, science evolves it's important to sort of be able to find a way to have things like a family and also be able to be a successful scientist and i really do believe that with good time management those sorts of things are possible. So I am looking for a lab that's not going to say like, you know, no vacation, <laughs> um, you know, like 12 plus hour days. I'm looking to have sort of a little bit of, a, of, of an existence. So that's one thing. But sort of the other thing and maybe the most important thing for me is even if I have to spend, you know, a whole bunch of hours there, is the project interesting? Um, is the project something that I care about? Because if I care about, you know, if I care about it, the hours matter to me a lot less, you know, because I'm there, I'm doing something I love. I feel like I'm doing something, something that's sort of, you know, for the good of, you know, everybody. The other question is, um, so I have family. So the question is, how far do I want to travel away from my family and for how long? Um, 
so these are sort of considerations that like I, I'm an older PhD student and you can sort of tell, but they're important considerations when you're thinking about a postdoc. If you do have these close family ties and, you know, sort of trying to think about how do I balance um, making sure I'm still there with my family and also able to do the research that I want. So um, I'm trying to sort of I'm trying to sort of look more in the 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 northeastern region, which is where I currently am. But again, if the work is interesting enough, you know, it's only a couple of years, so I could see myself sort of moving on. The other thing that I think is really important in looking for a postdoc is how well you connect with your mentor. Um, you know, do you have sort of a, a relationship where you feel like you can talk to them and receive criticism from them um, in a way that is going to help you become a better scientist? Um, and, you know, are they sort of interested in you and do they want to make sure that, you know, you're going to, you know, going to get through and succeed and you're not going to sort of get lost, you know, and, and that can be an issue in some of the bigger labs that are, um, that just have so many students going through. Um, so for me, these are all important considerations when thinking about it. The other thing is, is like the lab culture and the people there, you want to make sure you like, um, for me, I don't really like the vibe of uh, competition. So I, I wouldn't be interested in a lab where it's like, you're both on this project, whoever, uh, generates the most data, you know, wins, I'd be like, oh, uh, okay, uh, probably not for me. Um, I have no problem, you know, generating data. I just don't want to have sort of an antagonistic relationship with anybody else in my lab. Yeah, well, good luck in your search for your next step. Thank you. Um, hopefully I can uh, find something that works. Um, I'm confident that I can. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and then I guess just to finish up, like, what has been the last year and a half like for you? Um, so it was definitely tough when uh, the uh, the state shut down um, and did only, um, you know, basically only COVID testing for a while. Um, it was really tough to get any kind of research done and stuff like that. But I was lucky in that I could do a bioinformatics project. So I was able to keep myself busy. Um, in terms of, again, a viral evolution standpoint, it's been fascinating in a very negative way. Um, <laughs> um, but not overall sort of surprising what we've seen. I've had a lot of talks with my mentor who does also viral evolution about like sort of what we thought might happen, um, what's going to happen. I've had a lot of talks with uh, my friends too, because they'll ask me, you know, like what's going on? And I was like, well, it was, you know, sort of very, um, the early response steps were so, so important. And I think that a lot of this could have been changed had those early response steps maybe been a little different, but I was actually caught off guard, even as someone in um, sort of the public health field at the uh, the lack of public health infrastructure um, and the sort of need that we have for much more centralized testing and data collection, um, possibly because, you know, I've been in New York and um, the Wadsworth Center is, is very good about that kind of thing. Um, it has been for many years, so I expected sort of more like that response everywhere, um, but that's that has not turned out to be the case. Um, so I, I was sort of taken aback. I was also, you know, in talking about viral evolution, when we talk about um, SARS, um, it's a positive sense RNA virus, which means it likes to mutate typically. But what's interesting about it, and I'm sure I'm sure you're aware of this as someone who studies SARS, is it actually uh, unlike many positive sense RNA viruses has a, a proofreading mechanism. And um, what that means is uh, it basically kind of can, in the same way that like you go back to a paper and you like look through it and you have like, you know, little red underlined words that you can fix. Um, 
SARS has something like that. So it can go through and go back and say, oh, I, uh, I, you know, I copied this wrong. I'll fix it. So I think some of us had kind of hoped that because of that proofreading mechanism, we wouldn't see quite so many variants popping up so quickly, um, especially when you compare it to a virus like West Nile, which doesn't have that. So, it, you know, it, it mutates a whole heck of a lot more. So that was sort of an interesting thing to find out for me. Um, was that even with this sort of proofreading, the selection pressure, I think, um, due to both vaccination and just the sheer number of cases sort of overwhelmed something that could have been helpful in sort of deterring variants. Yeah, and maybe just because it doesn't have an intermediate host, once it started going human to human, basically, yeah, the bottleneck, the selection pressure was immense to essentially get something that transmitted more, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's the other thing, right, is it doesn't have that dual host um, keeping it keeping it from really sort of going kind of nuts. Cool. Well, thanks so much talking to you. Good luck in your uh, future endeavors. Thank you. This has been Let's Meet the Virologists, a podcast about people who study viruses. This is your host, Larissa Thackray, and thanks for listening. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon Music, Spotify, and other podcast providers, or at lmtv.podbean.com.